Outside, should I run and hide? How do I take my company worldwide? Do you love the law? Did you watch Hee Haw? What's the weirdest thing that you ever saw? What's it like in court? Favorite sport? Can you help with my book report? Is my hair too long? Am I right or wrong? And do you mind if I sing along to anything? Ask Alan anything in the world. All right. Uh, good morning, everybody. Hello. Uh, welcome to this episode of Ask Alan, the podcast. Uh, I'm Alan Crone, the CEO of the Crone Law Firm. And um, we're here today with uh, Charles Thompson. Uh, Charles is the, um, I'm pulling up my cheat sheet here, Charles, make sure that I get the name of uh, your organization correct. Okay. Uh, he's the Development Director for Mental Health Services at Support Solutions of the Mid-South LLC. Um, and uh, Charles also serves as the Vice President of the National Alliance of Mental Illness. So uh, Charles, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Alan. Good morning. How you doing? I'm, uh, I'm okay. As I said, I'm, I'm holding up, uh, which is, uh, how about you? You doing all right these days? I'm doing fine. You know, I'm, I'm making the best out of what we can, what we got going on now. I'm doing great. Thank you. All right. Well, I, I'm going to I'm going to jump and ask you a question because it's uh, the elephant in the room. Are you a uh, Pittsburgh Steelers fan? Of course I am. I, I'm Hey, you know what? I, hey, you know what? I always travel. <laughs> I got the Pittsburgh. I got the uh, yeah, I'm a Steelers fan. Very good. Well, I see the terrible towel on on your wall behind you. And I just I had to ask you about that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How long have you been in Memphis? I've, I've been actually. I was born and raised here in Memphis. Okay, all right. So, did were you one of the people that went to the uh, uh, Memphis Oilers game, uh, the final game when they played Pittsburgh, and where the Pittsburgh fans outnumbered the uh, uh, the Oilers oh, fans? You know what? That was the first time that I was able to go to a Pittsburgh Steelers game, and me and my son was one of the ones that was in there yelling and hollering. You know, Pittsburgh, go Pittsburgh. I mean, there so weren't many was, people at that game, as I recall. It was more, it, it was, I, you know, back then, I think that the, the part that we were having problems with was that Memphis was trying to get a team. And Houston had just came over to us, and they were pacifying Memphis by saying, we're going to play here. And so, you know, we were, you know, we, here in Memphis, we only had either choices. Usually going to be a Dallas Cowboy fan, or a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. I was one of the ones that fell on the on the good side of the grass and became a Pittsburgh fan. <laughs> and so when you call yourself bringing a team in, and, and it wasn't our team, you know, even after Memphis had been trying to get their own team forever, uh, you just couldn't pacify. So, you know, I was one of those ones that kind of hung out with the Steelers. Well, uh, you know, the story is that uh, Bud Adams, who owned the team at the time, uh, saw that uh, – the Steelers fans outnumbered the, the Oilers fans. And that's when he decided not to play the second year in Memphis, but to go ahead and play at Vanderbilt stadium while he waited for uh, Nissan stadium to be built. Yeah, it, it was, but see, once again, it, it was more or less like you were trying to tell us that we're going to, you know, Memphis was trying to get a professional team. Nashville wasn't even trying to get one. You said, I'm going to bring a team to Tennessee. But instead of going for the place that was trying to get a team, 
you're going to pacify us and give us, you know, a couple of years, you know, so we wasn't really just having it because it wasn't our team. No way. Uh, I agree. I was, I was here at the time as well. And, uh, uh, you know, it, um, it, it really kind of uh, ended my, my infatuation with the NFL. I used to be, uh, I, you know, I grew up in Memphis and as you point out, we didn't have a team. Right. And um, I didn't really become a um, Cowboys fan or any, but I enjoyed watching NFL games uh-huh. uh, until then. And uh, it just, um, you know, I remember Bud Adams famously said, they asked him, well, are you going to change the name um, from Oilers? And he said, yes, well, you're going to do it before the season starts. And he says, no, we're not going to waste a new name on Memphis. And, uh, you know, some other things that just showed he didn't value Memphis at all. And, um, uh, my dad has said for years that while we chase the NFL, that we ought to be putting money into the university of Memphis football because, um, they're not going anywhere. And, and, and I think that was, I think that's been borne out to show that a unit when the university of Memphis does well, it's almost as impactful as having our own NFL team. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, if you are a Memphian, you know, definitely you, 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 you got a great love for the University of Memphis. Well, you know, back in the day it was Memphis State, but the University of Memphis. Uh, and now that you've given us the, the beautiful Grizzlies, so, you know, you become a Grizzly fan. So, you, you know, it's, it's more or less homegrown. You, you know, if it's, it's ours, we, we represent ours. We love ours. So how, many more years, how many more years do you think Roethlisberger has at uh, Pittsburgh? You want me to come as a fan or you want me to come as an individual who watches sports? Or do you, how do you want me to answer that question? Well, I know as a fan, you'd love for him to be uh, as great as he was the Super Bowl year and stay there forever. Uh, but as a as a observer of football, what do you what do you what do you think? Well, how long do you think he'll last? They, they, they said we got one more year. Ben has one. He has he, Ben is not ready to retire, but I'm going to be honest with you. I love Ben, but he needs to just, you know, let's teach somebody else to be a Ben. You know, um, Ben is 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 a great guy. I love his heart. I think that he has the, the heart of a lion, um, but he's the arm is just not that of a sling shooter anymore. So I think it's about time for us to, to look for something different. Well, I, I wish the Steelers the best of luck. My, what, I had a brush with greatness. Uh, in that I had a case in, um, in Pittsburgh, actually I had two or three in Pittsburgh and I'm having dinner at a, uh, uh, nice restaurant. I'm sitting at the bar eating dinner because I was there by myself. And, um, I, I I look next to me, there's this, there's this big guy sitting next to me and it's Ben Roethlisberger. Hmm. And, uh, uh, we, we kind of struck up a conversation, a nice conversation about something other than football. And, um, and then uh, a, a group of uh, young ladies who were there for a uh, bachelorette party sent him a drink, and that was the last I saw of Ben Roethlisberger. Oh, wow. Uh, so I finished my, my, my meal and left. But he was, he was very nice, um, very cordial, and um, he, he, uh, he, he, like I say, he, he, we had a nice conversation. He didn't uh, treat me like I was a lesser human being, and uh, he couldn't have been nicer. Lifelong Memphian, where'd you where'd you go to high school? I went to Northside. I went. I was a. I'm a graduate of Northside High School, class of '88. 
All right, very good, very good. And uh, where where'd you did where'd you do your college? I went to a small school up there. It's, it's actually called now the University of Arkansas Fort Smith, but I went to the school. It's, it was called back then West Stark Community College uh, in Fort Smith. Uh, I, my mother wanted me to leave the city of Memphis, get out of the city of Memphis, and uh, start a life. Uh, I, I went there, went to school, you know, typical kid, did everything that a kid does. And after school, I came back home. You know, uh, you, you know, of course, being away from home gave you the opportunity to consider yourself to be grown. So uh, I, I, I had no supervision. So just go figure a, uh, a inner city kid, uh, 18 years old, going off to a whole nother state. Uh, no supervision and being a kid. So the first year or two wasn't, wasn't just the best of, but it was, I enjoyed myself, but it wasn't the best of, but I, I actually got life experiences and, and was able to come back home and, and try to make a difference. Sure. Uh, what did you think of Northwest Arkansas? Um, Northwest Arkansas was pretty cool. I, I thought it was, it was, to me, coming from Memphis, it was a slow city which is something that I needed. I needed something to slow me down. Mm -hmm. um, it was a, I, I was able to, to get close enough. I was there during the year when the Razorbacks won the national championship. So I was able to get part of the hoop and holler when they was doing that. Um, I, I learned uh, that Arkansas was a, was a dry County on the week on Sunday. <laughs> and so, and we, I, I, I explored, Oklahoma a lot more than I thought my mother would have wanted to know back then. <laughs> uh, but other than that, I mean, it was, I mean, it was cool. It was quiet. It was great scenery. Um, the upper North uh, part of that Arkansas was, was just, I mean, it was nice. I, it's, it's a lot different than West Tennessee. Oh, of course it is. I mean, you, you know, I mean, I, uh, me being a product of North Memphis, I, I can tell you, we had our fair share of, of eventful evenings. Uh, up there, it was more or less like you was, you know, you had to look for something to do. You know, you, only thing I was able to, I was, what I had to do was I, I, you know, golf was one of my courses in school. So uh, we, we would go out in the driving range, out, well, out in the baseball field and just drive the ball. So that's all we did. That was fun <laughs> for us back then. So um, what'd you study? I, I actually was in social work and I did, uh, I did social work and general studies. So uh, of course, the social work part of me is what came back home with me. Um, the, uh, I did not anticipate doing anything like this, but you know, it was more or less like I was, you know how you look for those easy classes. You know, mom made you go to school, look for something easy. So, well, um, so you came back to Memphis and did you immediately get into the mental health space or, uh, what, what did you, where'd you land when you came back? Um, when I came back, I was, as, as those young folks would say, I was looking for myself. Um, I, I ended up going to, uh, Memphis mental health, uh, Memphis mental health Institute. You know, back then it was, you know, we used to call it Poplin and Dunlap. So it was, mm -hmm. it was the, uh, I started out being a facilitator. I did groups there. Um, 
I would, you know, facilitate groups to to talk to individuals about things, you know, just some ADLs as we would say, you know, the activities of daily living, just some common stuff to just talk to them. Um, our groups would be some lighthearted, some get a little heavy, but it was it was more or less just talking to them, you know, trying to find out why are you coming back into the hospital so much, because I was finding a pattern that individuals were coming back into the hospital on a regular basis. Uh, you know, they would come in, maybe stay two weeks. That's probably was the limit. And then they would leave, but they would come back. And I would be like, what, what's going on? What's wrong? So that's technically, when I say MMHNI, I didn't really look to go to MMHNI. That was not my dream place of going. Um, it was when you came back, you applied for a couple of places. MMHNI was the first place in the call. And, and I'm quite sure the reason why they called me because I was a, a big guy and they needed somebody who can come down there and be a big guy at the hospital. I'll, I'll tell you my MMHI story. Um, when I was a young lawyer, younger than I am now, uh -huh. um, my partner, my law partner and I were, were looking for, um, you know, we we're looking for money because we, we, we were just uh, starting. We both had young children and, um, you know, we needed to, to, uh, to feed the family. So, uh, we did what a lot of young lawyers did. We, we went around and, and, uh, talked to some of the judges and, and were appointed to do mental health hearings over mm -hmm. there on Poplar and Dunlap. Uh, and, uh, there was one particular judge who was a friend of mine, uh, found named Sam Thompson. Okay. And, uh, Sam had had an interesting life. He, uh, uh, had been part of the Memphis mafia I was one of uh, Elvis Presley's bodyguards at the end of Elvis's life and uh, later became a sheriff's deputy and then became a lawyer, became a, um, a judge at juvenile court, and then ultimately ended up as a county judge. And um, remarkable uh, career of a guy just uh, kind of taking one, putting one foot in front of the other. But he had the best uh, process because he'd come in and I always said, be, uh, being a defense lawyer, uh, in those mental uh, health hearings was like being the Washington generals playing the, uh, 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 the, the, the Globetrotters. You weren't uh -huh. expected to win anything because uh -huh. most of the people there, it, it, like a lot of judges said they needed help. And my job was to make sure that all the I's were dotted and T's were crossed. Um, but Sam ended those, those uh, hearings in such an interesting way. He would, he would uh, let the lawyers talk and they would be an ex, you know, uh, doctors uh, testifying. And then at the end, he would always turn to the, to the patient and say, okay, Mr. Mr. or Ms. Smith, you have something you'd like to say. And he would let them talk. And they usually didn't talk more than a minute or two, but if, if they went on, he would just sit patiently and he would listen to them and he would nod his head and uh, they would, they would finish and he'd say, is that all you'd like to say? And they'd say, yes, sir. And they said, preach. And they almost always said, thank you for letting me have my say. And then he'd pull the commitment papers over in front of him on the desk and he would say, all right, now, Mr. Smith, I'm going to sign these papers for you. And so you can just, you can, you can go with the, with the deputy. And you could, the, they would, the, they would smile and you could tell that they thought what he was saying, I'm going to sign these papers to let you out. What he was saying is I'm going to sign these papers to put you in. Right. And these double doors in that courtroom. And if you turn right, I always say you turn to the light. That was the, 
the glass doors that led outside uh, into the, the street. Believe me, I, I know I know that barrier. Yeah, and you turn left and you're going back to the hospital and the and the doors of the courtroom would close just as they were turning to the left and you would hear the, the patient say, hey, where are we going? Yeah. Um, but I thought it was a kind, and that's a little longer story than I intended to tell, but I always thought that was a kind way of, uh, of handling that by giving the patient their say and then um, doing what he had to do in a way that was kind of broke it gently to them. But uh, no, that's my MMHI story. Okay. Okay. I, I, you, you know, MMH and I, those were, that was my growth. Uh, that was my growth in mental health. Now, cause it, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. If I tell you, Alan, if you'd have talked to me, I've been doing mental health now for about 31 years. If you'd have told me 31 years ago, I would be sitting where I am today. I, I could, you know, as my pastor would say, I probably would have used a couple of those double-jointed words and told you something was wrong with you, you know, but, you, you, you know, we serve a, a, a higher power that actually orders those nice steps for us. And so, and so my journey from that happened because that's where he placed me at. And I just wanted to say, you, you know, I, I, I look at it, your story I've had, I can tell you a whole bunch of those mental, mental health stories that, that would, would just, it would, it would make you laugh, make you cry. And, but, but all of them were good to be able to, to help an individual understand where somebody's coming from and where they're trying to go. How has mental health services changed in the 31 years that you've been uh, involved? What I do now is housing. I do housing. You know, I used to remember I told you I, I, I was asking them, why are you coming back? Why are you coming back? I had an opportunity. You know, a lady met me while I was at MMHNI one time doing group. And she she said, I just love your, your demeanor. I just, you, you know, your temperament with them is awesome. You know, you'd be good in the setting. Uh, she, she was starting a house, you know, uh, that provided services for individuals with mental illness. And I was like, okay, I wasn't really looking for nothing. Um, but she said, you know, uh, I could get you this amount of money and I can pay you every week. Of course, you know, back then, you, you know, I like, hey, every week, hey, hey, hey. So I, 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 you know, I jumped on it. And what happened was, is when I went into the home, I saw some of the folks that was in the home, that was in the hospital. And I'm like, man, you got this, this is nice. Why are you coming back into the hospital? Well, while I was there, I, and I only did this, I was doing this part-time. I wasn't really doing it for a full-time job. It was a weekend position. You know, I, I got a state job, got a nice job doing my, but the individuals told me then, we don't go nowhere. We don't do nothing. We just come here. Our own thing we do is smoke cigarettes. You know, we come here, smoke cigarettes, go home, you know? And so we had an opportunity not to, to do anything, but just stay here and create trouble and be, be mischievous. Um, and so as the time went on, the young lady asked me what I think about coming on full time. And I told her that the only way I come on full time is we got to change some things. Um, you, we have to do more with the residents to get them in the community. Uh, your question was, what do I see different now than then? is that now you have stable housing out here that's available for folks to, to be able to live a life and not have to worry about being in the streets. 
you know, not having family members who are taking their money and putting them back in the hospital. Uh, one of the things that I've came across in, in mental health is a lot of times you have family members who act like they care. Now, some do care, don't, and I don't want to get that misconstrued. Some folks really do care, but some of them are only there to, to get their money. And, and they know the system just well as enough as the residents do or the clients do. And they do whatever they can right when check time comes so they can get back in the hospital. That way I can spend your money. So by the time you get out of the hospital, you ain't got no money. And then you're back on the streets. And the cycle, just it just re repeats itself. Um, so with the, the creation of stable housing, it, may, it gave uh, individuals an opportunity to be able to come out of the hospital into a stable environment, actually, and have some support, give you somebody who cares about you. You know, I tell everybody who comes into my into the housing program that I love your mother, I love your father, I love everybody that's a part of your family, but I personally don't care nothing about anybody because you are the most important person. And I, I don't say it to be mean, but I, I try to get them to understand that you know, because mom, you love mom. Mom is the best thing going. But all the, not every time mom has your best interest at heart. And because you love mom so much, you trust her, you believe in her, and, and but the cycle never changes with mom. So when we gave them housing, when we gave them somewhere stable, it's actually like we become part of your family. We want you to know that we are part of the family and we're here to make a difference in your life. I'm sorry, you know, I can just talk. You got to shed me up sometime. I'm sorry. Well, tell me a little bit about Support Solutions of the Mid-South and what its mission is. We are a, a Support Solutions of the Mid-South. Of course, it was founded back in 2005 by uh, Dr. Larry Durbin, um, and he had a couple of partners that were part of it. Um, they actually started out with the intellectual disability. I've actually been here with Support Solutions now for the, the, the company I used to work for. Let me, let me tell you how, how funny this is. The company I used to work for, uh, Dr. Durbin's partners were owner of the other company. And when I left the other company, Dr. Durbin wanted me to come over here and do what I was doing at the other company. And so we, we, when I came over here, we created the housing program that we had with another company. And so, um, Dr. Durbin had a vision of providing stable housing for individuals in the community to stop the recidivism of going back and forth into the hospital and giving the individuals a quality of life to be able to live their life to the best that they could or more as independent as possible without having you constantly not having a place to go. Well, that sounds great. And, um, What's the, what's, the, what's the primary means of support? You talked about housing. Uh, what, uh, is there, a, is there a, a key to uh, helping these folks get independent and be successful? We provide them with, in, in, uh, we, we have managed care organizations that we, we deal with. And we have to provide them with psych, what they call psychosocial rehabilitation. We do 15 hours of psychosocial rehabilitation, plus we do other outside other than the norm. Uh, we, when you come, one of the biggest things about individuals with mental illness is when they get out of the hospital, medication. 
our focus is on medication, 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 and medication. It's important to us that an individual understand their medicine because if, they, if they're taking their medicine, there's no need of you not being out here without medicine and ending up back in the hospital, um, getting you a support system while you're here, meaning a great mental health center. You know, support solution has a mental health center that we actually, that's our partner, they, where I, they, our company is our company. And in housing, we're able to get them linked up with the, the psychologist, the nurse practitioner, uh, social workers and everything of that nature. And so even when they transition out, they'll be able to have somebody that's a, a support system and they know all about this stuff. It's important that you know your meds, how to get your meds, know you know the purpose of your meds. That's one, you know, one of the biggest things that I have talking to individuals is teaching them the importance of taking your meds. Uh, I, I try to give them an understanding uh, because a lot of times individuals go back in the hospital because they're not med compliant. You know, the biggest thing that you hear is non-compliant with medication. Mm -hmm. um, the, the problem be because when you start to feel better, you know, you stop taking your meds. It's, it's just, you think about us, let's look at me and you. Some of us, when we have a, a say like a doctor give us an antibody, he tells us, he, I need you to take all of this until it's gone. You know, and then we know that the antibiotic is there to fight an infection. So what we do? We take, our, we take the antibiotic as long as we need to. And when we start to feel better, guess what we do? We stop taking the antibiotic. We put them few pills that we got left to the side. And then, so if, if it came back, we'd be able to say, hey, I got a few more, you know, I got a few more pills, I can take it again. Well, and I try to explain it to the, to the residents that come into the house, that just like a common cold or, or an infection, the doctor tells us to take it until it's gone. Not till we feel better, but till it's gone. And so you have to get the uh, residents. I call them residents, so you're gonna have to forgive me if I if I say that on more than one. We had to talk to you. Know, we had to tell the residents that with your illness, your mental illness, because I got to get you to understand your mental illness. You have to take your medicine as prescribed, not till you feel better. And see what happens is, is when they feel better, you know, they they thinking clears up. They starting to say, hey, I know this, I know this, I feel better. And so what happens is, is I feel better, so I don't need to take any medicine anymore. So the importance is educating our residents on the importance of continually taking your medicine. Sure, and then a lot of folks that have mental illness, they also have other, uh, they have other issues that either either, you know, companion issues or issues that 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 come along like substance abuse or other things. Um, that how do you deal with? with someone who's got a kind of multifaceted set of problems? Well, with those individuals with the dual diagnosis is what you, you we actually, because we have a, a mental health center here, uh, we have counselors that are here to talk with them and work with them. We actually reach out in the community. If there's something that's a little bit bigger than us, we'll reach out in the community and grab another agency that can actually help provide those services for our clients. Uh, but we, we do IOP, which is an individual outpatient. We do it in group setting. We do it in individual settings. So we actually try to focus on individuals in the home or in the community, you know, because we have that not just for folks in home, but also those individuals in the community who wants to have individual therapy, who wants to 
participate in those group settings, we have that to where they can come in and actually still be able to, to provide, get those services on an outpatient basis. What are the, what are the best ways that uh, we can get awareness uh, in the, the, the general community about how important it is for us all to address uh, mental illness as a disease and as a, uh, a you know, uh, an obstacle that a lot of people in our community have to live in their best life. You, you know, one of the things that, the most important thing to me is, is that we have to understand that that, that mental illness is real. You know, a lot of folks don't think that it, this is real out here. They, they think that it's something that you can just look at it and go. So we have to be able to educate individuals on that. Um, one of the things that I'm a part of, I'm the vice president of NAMI Memphis. NAMI Memphis is the National Alliance of Mental Illness. And their, their sole purpose is, is to educate family members, consumers, uh, to understand the disease, to understand the diagnosis. And even for family members, you know, a lot of times families don't understand mental illness. You know, in the African-American culture, we, we're getting better, but we used to just want to say, we're going to pray about it. We're going to let some, you know, we're going to let the Lord deal with that. Uh, but now we're starting to do more talking. We're starting to try to understand why is Billy that way? You know, Billy, up until he turned 18 years old, he was normal. Not understanding, not realizing that in some cases, schizophrenia doesn't kick in between till you're 18 years old. You know, between eight years, of eight, the age of 18 and 22 is the, you know, you about your time that schizophrenia, if it's going to, it kicks in. We, some folks don't understand that because, you know, Samuel been, you know, been drinking that he got alcohol induced psychosis, you, you know. So what we do is we, NAMI Memphis tries to educate the family as well as the resident to be able to, to understand the mental illness. You know, they, they provide free classes to the community to be able to get them to come out and, and actually learn so you can be, you know, better be able to take care of your child, your, your loved one, or even your spouse. You know, uh, we, we know that there are different things that may happen in life. You know, somebody gets in a car wreck, they get a TBI. So, uh, and NAMI helps with, you know, we, we work with you on that as well. Um, so... To, to be able to get out there. NAMI has a, an office here in Memphis. Um, it's at uh, 3728 uh, South Hickory Ridge Mall. Um, you know, the number, if they somebody want the number, the number is 901-517-8825. Uh, Ms. Veronica Black, the sweetest lady that you would ever meet, would be more than happy to help you. Uh, and she will give you directions on whatever you need to do out that way and get you in that way. What are some, uh, can you tell some uh, success stories on particular residents that you've worked with who've, uh, you know, who've adapted and overcame? I, you know, you know, getting individuals to understand their mental illness is, is going to be the, the biggest thing I can tell you. Once an individual learns and understand their mental illness. It becomes more, they, they become more willing to actually live with it, address it and be able to move forward. People should understand that mental illness is not a crutch. 
and and it shouldn't be considered that something that's holding you up. Mental illness is is actually a springboard to living a your best life, because once you understand your mental illness, you can actually take control of it and take control back of your life. So I, I would say that when we look at, um, I had a gentleman who at the another company that I worked for, we were building apartments next door for is it was more or less dependent. And once we started those apartments, the guy said, look at that apartment right there in the first corner, that's my place. I'm gonna go move over. Cause I explained to him what was the purpose of those apartments. And it's gonna, he said, it's gonna be like, we don't have to be here under the supervision. No, it's gonna be where you can live more independent. And so he focused on that's he, I'm talking about from the time that the first brick was put in there, he said, that's where I'm gonna live at. And so, and, and he watched it as it continued to build next door to the our facility. And lo and behold, once it got completed, he was able to say, you, you know, we, we set up a couple of treatments, goals and everything for everybody to do. And you, you know, you as a consumer, you, we get you to set up your own goals. What do you feel that you need to do to get better? And, but once he got his self mindset right, he was like, man, I, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna take this. I'm gonna know all of this. I'm gonna set up, he started setting up his own appointments. He started doing everything for himself. And before you know it, he was, he actually applied for the apartment himself, got it, was able to move in, stayed there for a couple of years. And then he actually, uh, um, I, I can't call his name, but, but he, he is doing wonderful. He, every now and then he calls me and say, Hey, Charles, you know, I'm doing great. I'm like, I, I'm just glad to hear this, man. That's wonderful. So, and I've had numerous success stories such as that. Um, once an individual takes control of their understanding their mental illness, we, we, we got to quit trying to hide it, quit trying to make it seem like it's, you know, it's not realistic, but it's there. And so individuals need to understand and grab hold to it and, and know that, once again, this is not the end. This is just the beginning of a beautiful situation that you can take control of. You know, an individual that, that has depended on everybody so long, so much, once he's able to take control of it, it gives them a sense of pride to make them say, hey, man, I did this. And, and that is what I consider my greatest success story is just listening to folks saying, Charles, I understand. I got it, you know, and, and I'm able to move forward from here. Well, that's what it's all about, isn't it? I mean, oh. that's got to make uh, that, you know, that's got to be a good day when when that sort of thing happens. That has got to be the most powerfulest thing that I have. I can tell you, I can experience dealing with the individuals that I deal with. Now, now, Alan, let me be realistic. Now, there's some folks that we have that's in our house setting that probably would never be able to function by themselves. But the goal is is to be able to, even if you, even if we know that there's a it's a slim possibility that you're going to be able to be by yourself. I still have to give you the vision. I still got to provide you with the tools that yes, it can happen. Cause who knows, man, you may be able to fool everybody and be able to do that. But if we don't try, cause a lot of times what happens, we don't try, you know, and we, we write folks off and say, Hey, this is it. You ain't going to do nothing else. But no, everyone that comes into our housing setting, we give them, the the tools 
to be able to have the ability to make their own decisions, to be able to provide, you know, to come up with what they want. You know, the guys, the guys, the ladies, they they create their own menus. We we take them to the grocery store. You know, we we go out and we do shopping. You know, we work on budgeting. We work on money management. We work on things that you would need as independent in the community. So those are some of the things that we do to, to actually, once again, even if you're not, you if you can't leave us right away, well, at least you're getting all the tools you need to be able, when you get ready to go, you're going to be able to transition out. Well, you're, you're blessed to be able to work every day and have such an impact on people. A lot of folks, uh, I think people have more of an impact on others than they give themselves credit for, but that's certainly a very tangible way of, of having an impact on individuals and your community. And uh, I'm so glad you were able to share that with us. Well, thank you. Uh, now, I hear through the grapevine that uh, you like to sing. Just a little bit, I do. I do, Alan. I, 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 am, a, I am a member of a, a group called the Mighty 100 Voices. It's a Christian choir. Mm -hmm. um, the actual the choir has been around this year makes 52 years it's a uh, it's a group of individuals that come from different churches and what we do is we we well of course because of the pandemic we hadn't been able to do what we normally do but every Sunday night we go somewhere we go to your like if you was a member we would come to your church on one Sunday night of the year and we would come and we would just sing some of the old gospel songs and whatever we, we take up an offering, but whatever we raise, it stayed right there at the church. So it was more or less like us as members go to different churches as fundraisers. But I, I sing just a little bit. Oh, very good. Do you, you ever sing any uh, anything solo? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, you ever do any theater? I, in, in high school, I did. Uh, Never, never here, not, not as an adult, but in high school I did, yeah. Well, you, you look like you'd have a great stage presence, and uh, so I was oh, thank curious. You. I like your, you've got a good, good, deep, rich voice, um, a lot of tools for that. Uh, maybe, um, you know, maybe in your next uh, career, uh, chapter two, uh, put you on the stage. Maybe we can do that. Maybe we, we will look at it and see that as an opportunity. Uh, so you still play golf? I don't get out as much as I used to, Alan. I'm talking about it. I'm talking about it in the last. Oh wow! You see, you got me scratching, and it, it's been a while. <laughs> I don't want. I want. It's been. It's been so long. You know, golf used to be something I loved doing. I'm talking about, man. I I, I used to love it. Um, and when I was in school, you couldn't keep me off the golf course during the weekends, um, but since I come home, I really just don't get out as much as I, you know, and so it doesn't come out, but I, I do have a passion for it. You know, if you see me with a golf club in my hand, every now and then you'll see me hit a ball every across the, you know, across the ball. And my, my, my 10 year old son said, dad, you hit the ball pretty good. I'm like, well, if you only knew, you know, I would tell him <laughs> if you only knew. So, uh, well, uh, sometime I, you, you and I may go play some golf and I'll make you look really good. Okay. Really good. <laughs> well, I don't know that, Alan. It's been so long now. You know, we, we may be out there just, we may have to both get a cheat sheet together and, and put it together. <laughs> <laughs> what else uh, What else you do? Uh, what does Charles Thompson do to relax? Besides saying? Well, 
well, of course, you know, NAMI is one thing. I'm actually, I actually just recently met a young man by the name of John Brown. He is the executive director of the lifeblood here in Memphis. And I, I, talking with him, um, he, he has informed me of so much about what's missing in, in the community of, as far as in African-American culture, as far as us being blood donors. You, you know, sickle cell affects African-American community more than any other community followed by the Latino and Hispanic communities. And, and there is a shortage of blood. And so I've been actually been with, this young man has enlightened me on a great deal of stuff that, that the community needs to be involved in. He's been trying to get churches to, to, to actually, you know, let's come out, let's get somebody to donate blood um, to, to work with that, especially like with uh, African-American communities in the uh, Latino communities to get them to donate more blood. Um, you know, a lot of folks don't understand it and they don't even know if they got sickle cell. But, you know, one of the things that Lifeblood does is, you know, when you donate, they check to make sure to see if you got, you know, got a sickle cell trait. Mm -hmm. um, you, you know, it's, it's easily to come out and, and register any churches that want to be a part. And it doesn't have to be the African-American community because I don't want them to think that, I you know, I said that because that is what sickle cell is one of the things that they're focusing on right now. Um, but the, the Red Cross has a wonderful organization that actually donates blood across through national disasters, whoever may need some, wherever it may be needed. They do a great deal of, of, of supplying the United States or with, with blood. And, and, and so, but in the African-American culture, the community, it is, is a rarity that we donate a lot of blood. And so I, I've been spending a lot of time working on getting uh, with Mr. Brown, Mr. John Brown, Mm -hmm. to get African-Americans uh, in, the, in the process of thinking about donating blood because you know you may need it yourself. Uh, also, uh, and if they wanted to, to register or be a part of that, if you don't mind me, Ms. Allen, you, you sure. can go to the, to the redcross.org forward slash blood and you can contact Mr. John Brown at john.brown3 at redcross.org or just give them a call at 901-726-1690. Uh, um, also, we'll put all that contact information for both in, uh, up on the screen so people okay. uh, can see it. Okay. Also, last thing I, I can tell you what I've been doing lately. Um, I live in the Raleigh area. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I am a lifelong Memphian. Okay. I, I am, uh, I created a, I was back a couple of years ago. Uh, I kept seeing the, my community just on the news every day. Somebody got shot. Somebody got shot. I created a Facebook page and, and I was, when I initially thought of it, I was going to be selfish and say Raleigh matters. Uh, but I, I, I changed the format and said Memphis matters to me. And, and the reason why I did it to Memphis matters to me because I want everybody who is a citizen of Memphis to look at themselves and say, Memphis matters to me. I mean, me as an individual. And if it matters to you, 
that means that you would be somebody who said, well, if it matters to me, I'm going to look at my neighborhood. Now, the area in Raleigh I live in is quiet, it's sweet, it's beautiful. I'm talking about when I tell you it's one of the hidden gems um, of Raleigh. But on the other side of Raleigh, there are areas where, you know, the, the crime is a little bit high. So my vision was when I created this is that I need to start talking to folks on this side because eventually Alan, you know, is out there, but it's coming. If I don't help stop it, where it's at, it's going to trickle. And, and that goes for every citizen in Memphis. It may not be in neighborhood right now, but if we as citizens do not take pride in Memphis as individuals, uh, it's coming our way. So I ran for, I said all that to say, I ran for the state of representative of District 98. Uh, I felt that the representation that we have is not adequate enough. Uh, my, my representative, I thought that he was an individual who whenever the camera came on, he was there to smile. He wanted to show his face and let you think that he was doing a great deal when all honesty, he wasn't really doing a whole lot. So I ran as state representative because I wanted to make a change in my district. Uh, to let everybody know that I am a, I'm going to, I was going to Nashville to represent, be a Nashville representative, but, but I'm a citizen of Memphis. So I need to make sure that Nashville know that Memphis is here. And so, and that was the, that was the original goal of that. Uh, but the coronavirus, of course, was out and I couldn't really get out and say a whole lot. Um, I, I, I did decent for an individual who never advertised one word on radio or, or you know, got out and did it. Well, I did advertise on radio, excuse me. I didn't put a whole lot of stuff out there. Right. Uh, so my, my fight to make uh, District 98 better has not stopped. Uh, COVID won't stop it. Uh, because you, as you can see, I have a passion for what I do. I, I, I love helping those who, who need us the most. Uh, I, I wish that we as individuals would quit turning our back on individuals and just look at our neighbor to be able to provide them with some, some, some form of care and support. Uh, I'm an associate minister at my church. And so of course, that's another one of those. If you told me I was going to be doing that years ago, I'd, I'd have said, no, not me. But, you, you know, the our high power has ordered all of our steps. And we have to realize and understand that steps that we're walking in is not something that you may have planned. But, you, you know, God has a vision for all of us. And we just got to know that he has provided us with means of getting where we're going because he because of his grace and so i'm one of those ones that live by his grace and his mercy daily and i just look for him to continue to just guide me so that that's charles thompson well very good i i um i can't help but think that uh, as a as a man of faith you uh you embody that and particularly you embody the uh the uh, injunction we were given uh, by, by Jesus, I believe it's Matthew chapter 25, where he says, do unto these least is the, the least, least you want to me. me. The yes, least sir. You want and you certainly live that every day. You every were day. Working, you were working for the least among us. And that is, uh, I thank you for that. And that's, uh, it's a beautiful thing. And if, if more of us made that effort 
just once or twice a day, uh, Memphis, Tennessee, the United States, the world would be a much better place. And thank you for what you do. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's, it's, you, you know, I tell folks that even you, you, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to just, if you don't mind, I want to, you know, the, the way the light is in it, normally in my office, I keep my lights off and I'm looking in, in the camera now, as you can see, my head has a nice shine on top of it. And so today I'm looking at it and I'm saying that this is not the light shining, but the Lord that's standing behind me shining bright. So, so hopefully you can see him shining off the off this dome of mine and and that's how i tell folks i just wanted i want to let my works be where you don't see charles thompson but you see the glorious works of our lord and savior well amen to that i think that's a, a great we're just about out of time and that's a a, a great note to end on amen. Uh, charles i i really uh enjoyed our conversation and uh please uh, know that uh uh, that I'm at least praying for you, praying for your, uh, your work with, uh, with your residents, keep uh, up the good work. Thank and, you. um, you know, if you, if you need anything from me, please, uh, please give me a call. And I would encourage, uh, everybody of faith who's watching this to, uh, say a little prayer for, uh, for Charles and the work he's doing and, um, uh, give him a call. And I'm sure that he'd be glad to, to also give you some practical ways uh, to get involved and help with what he's doing. Amen. Alan, if you don't mind, I didn't give you, if you want to call us here at Support Solutions. Yes. Um, definitely, um, this, you can reach me on my cell. I'm going to give you, and I can give you direction. My cell is 901-643-0224. Um, Support Solutions provide uh, supported housing for adults with severe and persistent mental illness. We actually do 24-hour supervised residential care. We also provide a mental health center that actually does telehealth, and we have case management and IOP. So we would love to be able to provide uh, those services for individuals in the community. They can reach out to me, and I'd be more than happy to direct them to where they need to go. Very good, very good. Well, Charles, again, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I enjoyed it. and. To everybody watching, thank you for uh, joining us for this episode of Ask Alan the Podcast. Um, if you enjoyed this show, and let's be honest, what what was what's not to enjoy? Uh, please share us, like us on social media, uh, email this around it to someone that you think would benefit from it. Uh, so that's all I got for today. Uh, I'm going to go get some justice. Thank you.